Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. We're delighted today to be joined by Jeremy Conondike. He's president of Refugees International, a noted, well-known, respected humanitarian advocate, emergency operator, policy thinker that has spanned the world of both emergency humanitarian relief and more recently issues pertaining to pandemic response, starting with Ebola, extending into COVID, MPOX, and other things. So, Jeremy, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Steve. Just a quick word on your on your career path. In the Biden administration, until very recently, you were the lead official at USAID on the COVID response, which was a which was a massive job at a massive moment in terms of coordinating this flood of emergency supplemental monies that came through AID for a variety of international purposes. You helped to organize and stand up the Global Vax program, and then got pulled in on impacts. We knew each other during the Biden-Harris transition. During Obama administration, we interacted a lot when you were heading up OFDA, particularly as we were looking at matters in Syria and elsewhere. And then back during the Ebola outbreak, uh, and the work that you did, the analytic work that you did after that around what the lessons learned were and your continued work. I assume you're still working with WHO and the Oversight and Advisory I am. Committee. Yep. So, all very impressive and terrific, rich set of achievements. We're going to have a mix of topics today in this conversation. I want to start with the earthquake that struck Turkey, Syria early in the year. I know you were very deeply invested in that. Let's just start big picture. What were the biggest lessons that came out of that? There was a lot of attention focused on the Northwest. Give us your your big picture take on that. I think it was a major localization fail, unfortunately, and it has caused me to reflect more on what I wish I'd done differently when I was at OFDA. So I was at OFDA during the very early years of the Syria war. I was there from 2013 to 2016. And we were talking a lot and thinking a lot about how to work more with Syrian organizations at that time. But we never quite, we never quite got it right. And never really got beyond the model that we were most comfortable with, and that I think most humanitarian donors remain most comfortable with, which is funding almost exclusively through UN organizations and major international NGOs. And I think what we saw in the immediate weeks after the earthquake struck Turkey and Syria was that when those actors, particularly the UN actors, were taken offline for a while, there wasn't an alternate way to surge additional resources into the Syrian groups who were, you know, were doing the heavy lifting in those early days after the quake. And it is really, I think, indefensible. I don't say that to kind of point fingers. I say that including myself in that in retrospect because I didn't do enough at the time. But it's really indefensible that now a decade plus into the war, there is not more of a direct 
relationship and direct support to the Syrian groups that have been the most constant presence in Northwest Syria. Now, since we the war made began. some head. We made significant headway early in the war during the Obama administration at striking deals with a consortium of many U.S.-based or U.S.-linked Syrian diaspora groups that performed pretty well. We hosted the formation of their consortium here. We gave them platforms. What didn't work exactly in this time? They still do not have the kind of kind of first-tier funding relationships Mm -hmm. with the major donors that Mm -hmm. the name-brand INGOs and the UN agencies do. And I think that has begun to change a bit. The U.S. just made the first direct grant to the White Helmets in the aftermath of the earthquake, which is great, but it's a little bit staggering that it took us this long to make the first direct grant to the White Helmets. That's as kind of high profile and reputable a Syrian organization as you could possibly hope to find. And it took this long to do that. So that's good. But I think it also it also indicates that I think the problem that we had in the kind of early years of the war when I was at OFDA was the mentality around local financing was that we were sort of waiting for the local partner organizations to meet us on our terms rather than trying to meet them on theirs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I I remember doing a lot of meetings with Syrian groups and the sort of message and the mentality within the U.S. government at that time was, okay, here's what you need to do to be eligible for our funding. And I think in retrospect, we got that backwards or at least half backwards. There was a great piece that Patrick Fine wrote for the Brookings Institution back in December, where he talks about localization at USAID and not just humanitarian, sort of broadly speaking, administrator powers, localization agenda, and says, you know, that what's, what's not working with localization is not the local partners, it's the donors. And in the US case, the issue is the capacity constraint is on USAID side not on the side of the local partners. The problem is that USAID doesn't know how to partner with local partners and systems are not flexible enough to serve local partners well. And I think that is fundamentally right. And I think that that is the, you know, that's where I've landed as well in the intervening years. And I think it's very hard. And this is, you know, we're going to talk about Ukraine later. I think you see a very similar challenge at play in Ukraine. I mean, we had a humanitarian task force that Jake Kurtzer stood up a few years ago. I think you were part of that. This issue was front and center then. I'm not sure we came up with solutions at that time, but it's a nagging, vexing problem that's right at the center of all humanitarian response, it seems to me. Just as an aside, I mean, back in February at the Munich Security Conference, um, Dr. Tedros, head of WHO, Mike Ryan, head of the emergency operations, came to Munich, and they were fresh off of a trip into Syria where they had flown from Dubai or somewhere into Aleppo. They had witnessed the combined force of the earthquake on top of the absolute levels of destruction from the war and the bombings. And then they traveled overland to Damascus, witnessing the landscape there, and then went, met with Assad, negotiated some expansion of access. Of course, Martin Griffith at Ocha was working in concert with them and this sort of thing. Was that worthwhile in retrospect, do you think? That that was pretty courageous, gutsy kind of thing to do. I think what made it worthwhile, and I I had some exchanges with Dr. Tedros in the course of those trips, I was really urging him to not only visit the regime side. And, And so I think what was super important was that he followed that trip up to Aleppo and to Damascus with a trip into northwest Syria from the Turkey side. 
and was the first uh, high profile UN official, or at least a UN official at that level, to go in, I think, since the beginning of the war, certainly in a very long time. It was interesting to see the reaction to that. Some people on, on social media who tend to be huge critics of WHO's work in Syria were very positive about that mm-hmm. because it was a show of tangible solidarity right. and an even-handedness mm-hmm. that they really were not used to seeing from the UN. You know, Martin Griffiths famously, when he went into or he went to the border in the days after the earthquake, apologized to the people of Northwest Syria right. for the UN's failure to do more to help them. So that was important. I think Dr. Tedros's visit was even more important and took that a step further by actually going in mm-hmm. and, you know, I think seeing and helping them to be seen in Northwest Syria as not just through the lens of the regime and through the lens of Damascus, but on their own terms, which is what they've really wanted. So really, when you look at Martin Griffiths, you look at Dr. Tedros, you look at Mike Ryan, this is a different kind of leadership at the humanitarian level than we've seen in the past vis-a-vis the Syria crisis, certainly. Certainly from WHO. Yeah, Yeah, certainly from WHO. And that's partly reflective of the larger changes in WHO on emergency response generally that that I've worked on now since the Ebola outbreak. You know, the pre-Ebola WHO would never have done something like this. And it's years of investment in building out that emergency function, but also, and I really credit Dr. Tedros for this, affirming that that's a really fundamental part of what WHO does and what its mission is, which hadn't really been the mentality pre-Ebola. Paradoxically, this also coincided with the rehabilitation of Assad. And most recently, last week, Erdogan's ability to prevail in the election process when he had patently dropped the ball on the emergency humanitarian side of things. So both Assad and Erdogan come out of this looking better than one could ever have imagined. How do you explain that? I I don't presume to fully be able to explain it. Look, I think a lot of the Arab states that are now working towards reconciliation really have, I think, made the decision to to reconcile with Assad. We're sort of looking for some cover story for doing so. They had all, and frankly, I think a lot of the U.S. political system too, if not formally, has sort of tacitly accepted that Assad has won. And so... You know, in the U.S., we haven't really taken that the U.S. government hasn't really taken the next step of then forming a new relationship with Assad on that basis. The neighbors in the region basically are. And I think what the earthquake did was give them an excuse and sort of a cover story for taking that to the next step. But frankly, you know, MBS and Assad have a lot more in common temperamentally and ethically than they have differences. So to think that somehow like anything Assad has done is beyond the pale for MBS is fantasy, right? Now, the Russians, of course, came in in 15 using their airbase, their port and airbase and massively expanding their aerial operations, which is what turned around Assad's fate on the battleground and tested all of these battle tactics that are now being used extensively inside Ukraine. When you look at this question of, of Assad rehabilitating and getting accepted within the region, the Russian military's presence and active role within the war within Syria is scaled way back, right? It's not gone, and it would be hard for us to do anything very far in reconciling with Assad. You know, Russia's main focus clearly is Ukraine now, yeah. but the war is much smaller than it was when they first intervened. You know, when, when Iran intervened in a larger way in 2013-14, and then, you know, that really saved Assad from collapse, but it wasn't sufficient 
and and Russia came in at a moment where, I mean, without their intervention, he really was at risk of losing the country. That's no longer the case. Like they have prevailed, and it's a I think it's a combination of, on the one hand, those outside interventions, which very clearly had a goal in mind, and that goal in mind was to enable him to win. And on the other side, there never was real backing for a countervailing force to Assad. Mm -hmm. There never was a clear single countervailing force right. to Assad either, right. which was part of the problem. So to the extent there was intervention on the other side, it was kind of Turkey pursuing its interests in northwest Syria, northern Syria, which was principally about containing Kurdish militarism. It was the US pursuing its own interests, which was predominantly about containing ISIL. None of the foreign interveners were really focused on overthrowing Assad or enabling the overthrow of Assad. And so, you know, on the one hand, he had backers who wanted him to survive. The people who didn't want him to prevail didn't have backers. And so it, you know, over time, it worked to his advantage. A Refugees International's always very active on U.S. border policies vis-a-vis -vis asylum, parole authorities, the special pathways created for folks from Cuba, Venezuela, Haiti, and the reliance now on this new CBP-1 app for folks to apply to come. And now we've, in a period after the public health emergency has ended, of Article 42 lapsing. This whole combination of policies is very confusing to most Americans and obviously supercharged with partisanship allegations half-truths, whole falsehoods, and more. So how do you make sense for our listeners of where we are right now? So I just actually spent a week visiting sites on the border, uh, the week before last, uh, looking at the situation post-Title 42. And you know, as someone who comes from a background more on international refugee issues, it was really fascinating, enlightening, and pretty profoundly depressing to see how we manage that challenge on our own when it comes to our own border. We as the U.S. are treating the asylum seekers on our border as fundamentally an issue of domestic immigration enforcement, not as a refugee issue. And I think that's our fundamental, that's the fundamental problem. And, and it, it is very different from what we encourage other countries to do. So when, you know, when Afghans are seeking refuge in Pakistan, when Venezuelans are seeking refuge in Colombia, when Somalis are seeking refuge in Kenya, we do extensive humanitarian diplomacy with those countries, urging them to acknowledge and treat these people as refugees, if not fully in law, at least in practice, right? So in Colombia, most of them were not acknowledged as formal refugees under the 1951 definition, but certainly they were granted rights in Colombia. They were allowed into Colombia on a basis that looks much more like a prima facie refugee recognition. And that was with full-throated support from the U.S. government. Um, similarly, you know, with Somalis in Kenya, every few years for decades, Kenya would uh, threaten to throw out all the Somalis and then everybody would kick into gear and say, no, these people are refugees. Please, 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 you know, keep doing your, your good work and supporting them and then throw in a lot of aid money for care and maintenance of the refugees and so on. In neither of those cases, nor in most major refugee crises, was there a process or would we have supported a process of individual person-by-person -person legal adjudication of their refugee status, right? When Somalis are fleeing a famine in Somalia, you don't question whether they have a fundamental grounds for needing protection. Right. 
And then people come to our border. Somalis come to our border. We met a Somali in ICE detention. Afghans come to our border. We met a bunch of Afghans in ICE detention. Venezuelans come to our border. We met a bunch of Venezuelans when we were visiting sites inside shelters inside Mexico. And we immediately presume that they don't have a valid claim. And we immediately throw them into, I mean, many of them into detention. The kind of the automatic reaction is not to engage them as people who need protection, who are in flight from the valid fear and need protection, but but we, we fundamentally approach them as if they're trying to game the system. And so the presumptive reaction is a law enforcement approach. Put them in detention, force them to prove that they have a case, you know, forcing people who are, in many cases, very weary, heavily traumatized, often have been through multiple uh, rounds of, of targeted abuse from cartels and criminals and other assorted folks on their journey, have lost their documentation, have lost everything they own, many have severe health issues. And then we throw them into a prison where the federal marshals also keep prisoners. You know, that is the, right. that is the facility. And then treat them as criminals until proven otherwise, basically. So that's a grim picture. It's a pretty grim picture. So uh, what's, the, what's the light in this grim picture? Boy, I, I, I think we need to build. The, I think the light is that there is actually more support for refugees and for asylum in the U.S. population than there is in our political system. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the arbitrage opportunity, if you will. I've been really disappointed and I've been pretty vocal about this since taking on this role. I've been pretty disappointed in how the administration I served in has engaged this issue. The president campaigned on a very humane counterpoint to what we were seeing from the Trump administration, campaigned with a full-throated defense of the importance of humane asylum and really used that to differentiate himself from what we were seeing with the Trump administration. That hasn't been followed through. Then electoral politics kicked in. Electoral politics kicked in and electoral politics in a very specific way. Electoral Electoral politics politics in a sense of, you know, he was fearful think, of his right flank it, you know, honest, and saw that as the political vulnerability. And I think in a way that I would argue is a misinterpretation of the actual domestic politics of this, that you know, the issue is not one where people are fundamentally hostile to refugees or asylum seekers, but we have a political system that is. And I think there is an opportunity that I don't know if we will see it out of this administration. I suspect we won't, but I think what a future centrist administration needs to do is reframe the issue. We shouldn't be putting a lens of immigration enforcement on a global refugee crisis. And I think there are ways to make that case. You know, you look at the the reception that Afghans received in this country. Mm -hmm. You look at the reception that Ukrainians received in this country. There's no reason why we shouldn't be making the case that Venezuelans, for example, should be treated the same way. special pathways for Venezuelans, Cubans, I think it's a very positive step. Uh, I think the challenge and the problem with that we have with that policy is not the parole. I think the parole is excellent. The problem is that it's being framed as a substitute for asylum. And so what that is tied to is a bunch of new restrictions on asylum access, right. which in practice mean that the, the worst off people, the most vulnerable people are actually in a worse place. Because to access the parole pathway, you need to be able to afford a plane ticket. You need to have a sponsor in the U.S. You need to be able to have a passport. Well, the people who are the most persecuted are not going to be given a passport by their government if they know that's the intent, right? Political dissidents still need access to asylum. People fleeing violence under imminent threat to their lives cannot just cool their heels in their country waiting for a parole slot to come open. 
they are fleeing something real. And I think that's what our current posture as a country, our current policy doesn't really acknowledge. There is this kind of presumption that if we can just that that a lot of these people are trying to game the system and if we can just put together the right set of disincentives, we'll stop them from coming. And I think that unfortunately is the through line from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. This assumption that most of those people should not do not have a valid reason to be coming here. And some of them don't. Many, many of them do, and many more of them do than can be served by the, the parole pathways. I don't see that changing anytime soon, that basic outlook in the Biden administration, particularly as we enter this electoral cycle. Let's turn a bit now to uh, the work that you did in the Biden administration as, uh, as the lead at AID, USAID, on the COVID response. As I mentioned earlier, coordinating a massive and complicated flow of assistance, designing and moving forward the Global Vax program, eventually getting pulled in on MPOX. Also, in retrospect, what were the what were USAID's major contributions to the global COVID response in your view? So I think there were a few big things that we did. You know, the first big thing, and this I think it really is a credit to the administration and to Congress in those early months after uh, Biden came into office, was just a major resource infusion. At the point that we came in, the global COVID response was woefully underfunded. The global vaccine response in particular was woefully underfunded. COVAX had managed to raise pledges of only about a billion dollars up to that point, if memory serves, and most of that had not yet been fulfilled. And I think this kind of gets lost in some of the, the, the retrospective understanding of, of vaccine equity is, you know, what really hampered COVAX in those early in those early months when all the other deals were being cut is that they had no money. So they couldn't put money on the table. They could have gotten deals had they had money to put on the table. They had no money on the table. And so all of the donors, all the donor countries that supported COVAX were basically satisfying their own their own needs first. And, you know, only then were they going to put money into COVAX. Well, vaccine procurement doesn't work that way. To procure vaccines you know, in an experimental state, you need to put money on the table before you know what's going to work. COVAX didn't have a way to do that. And so... And couldn't compete. And so they lost out on all those early contracts to those who could put money up front. So when we came in, Congress had just passed $4 billion in the, the appropriation right, yeah. in, in the lame duck, right? In the lame duck, they had passed $4 billion for COVAX, which the Trump administration had said they were going to, they wanted to rescind. They had actually proposed to rescind that money um, and not spend it. Obviously, we were going to spend it. And so we came in and right out of the gate, uh, made a $2 billion contribution to COVAX with that funding and tripled COVAX's funding with one donation. Um, it was, fun fact, the largest contribution in the history of USAID. So that tripled COVAX's available money, and then they could actually start to lock in some of these contracts and get their vaccine procurement rolling to a degree that they'd been totally unable to finance before. So today, public health emergencies ended, era of massive emergency supplementals has ended, we have the debt ceiling deal just concluded all the particulars of those not exactly clear yet but we're in this process we're in the post acute phase the great unwinding is happening in terms of the 4.6 trillion that was committed a staggering amount we're in the the last phases of unwinding all of this what capabilities are going to live on at USAID that were acquired in this emergency phase because a lot of capabilities were created overnight that were astonishing and very important. Not all of them survive. 
There's a lot that's being dismantled. So what new capabilities will survive and live on? So I think that's you know, partly a question, I think, for uh, Atul and Samantha to answer. I know before I left, Atul Gwandi, the head of the Global Health Bureau, was very focused on building more of an enduring emergency response capability within USAID. You know, one of the things that we encountered in the first year was a little bit of a who's on first dynamic within AID, which I think has been within the agency for a long time. You know, when I first became involved with this cool, this whole sort of part of the field in 2014 with Ebola, you know, OFDA as the emergency responder for the agency functionally got drafted into Ebola because it became an emergency and the health operators didn't really have an emergency setting. You know, CDC didn't have uh, an operational emergency response setting for global work and nor did the USAID Global Health Bureau. And so we got drafted in by the White House to bring the architecture of a global emergency response that OFDA knew how, to, knew how to run. And so, you know, there you had the humanitarians come in to kind of complement what the health folks could do. At the outset of COVID, or at least when we came into COVID, it was a different dynamic. There was not an appetite within BHA to play that role again. And I think in BHA's defense on that, most of the tools and most of the partnerships that needed to be operationalized were not BHA partners. They weren't humanitarian partnerships. They were health partnerships. But the Global Health Bureau, so the Global Health Bureau tended to see this institutionally as an emergency issue, so not our job. And BHA tended to see this as a health issue, so not our job. And so that is where I came in, basically. And the task force that we then built, that I led, came in to kind of bridge that, that confusion within the agency about who should lead on this. And it definitely felt like a little bit of an uphill battle at times. I think what has happened since a tool came in is a tool very much sees this as something that the Global Health Bureau needs to be able to do. And so is has been working on building, and, and I don't want to speak for him overly much on this, but has been working to build more of an emergency competency into UCA Global Health so that on things like this and on things like MPOX and other responses that they are better suited to respond. And I think within some of the recent Ebola outbreaks, you see them putting that into action. So the, the Ebola outbreaks in Congo and Uganda were not run from the BHA side of AID. They were run from the Global Health side. And I think that is one of the hopefully enduring changes that will continue to grow. What were you able to accomplish globally on the MPOX response? Because that's been a problematic area forever. MPOX was fascinating, and it was a fascinating counterpoint, I think, to what we saw in COVID because it was a much more, kind of like Ebola, it was a much more mm-hmm. containable disease. It was, um, it was harder to get than, Ebo- than, than COVID. Like Ebola, it requires, you know, there's a kind of narrow window of types of close contact that can spread the disease, but also, again, kind of somewhat analogous to Ebola, but obviously manifesting in very different ways. A uh, very stigmatized disease. So it was as much about building social trust with the populations at risk as it was about intervening in terms of classical health intervention, kind of classical medical, I should say, intervention. You know, what we found was it didn't manifest in a global scale the way that we feared it might. So mm-hmm. it exploded in Europe, it exploded yeah. in the US. And then it didn't really explode in many other places. Think back to the early uh, month or two when it was starting to spread aggressively in the U.S. There was a lot of fear that, is this going to spread within children? Is this going to spread? And it didn't. We didn't see it do that. And I think in retrospect, a lot of that spread obviously happened within men who have sex with men populations, um, accelerated by 
a summer of gatherings in Europe where there was a lot of congregating of that population. And that really kind of supercharged the outbreak. And as the effect of that summer dissipated, we saw the cases diminish kind of somewhat organically and some, but also partly because of, I think, good public health interventions. Once it was recognized really how this was spreading, then a lot of excellent engagement and again, more as much focused on trust building as anything with men who have sex with men. And Dimitri Daskalakis, the CDC rep who co-led the White House task force on this, I think was just a, like one of the most impressive health communicators you will ever see. He did a tremendous job, both in terms of communicating effectively, but also with the community he came from and he represented being right at the center of the leadership of this, I think gave a lot of credibility to that communication. Two other topics before we close. One is you've been very vocal about the COVID response in, in two ways. One, you, you've emphasized that at home and abroad and in the response to the COVID pandemic, particularly in terms of equity and access, that there's been fundamentally a failure of political leadership. The second point that you've made and you've been vocal on is that the opposition to science and public health response the skeptics, those that engage in falsehoods, lies, conspiracy thinking, disinformation, are much better organized, more coherent, more politically impactful, and more successful, that there's a gap. Those two points are a kind of scary combination. So I wanted you to just say a bit more about that, because when I've heard you say that, it's a powerful point, powerful set of points. It's a very scary combination. And just one very fresh example of this. So uh, RFK Jr., who is a famous anti-vaxxer, is now, thinks he's now, I'll say, thinks he is running for the Democratic nomination for president. And uh, just this morning, there was an exchange on Twitter with Elon saying, hey, do you want to come do a Twitter Spaces with me? And him saying, yeah. And then Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, saying, this would be a great idea. So you have these kind of high-influence tech bro morons, if that's not too much to say, very enamored with one of the most high-profile anti-vaxxers in the country, right. right? And giving him a lot of airtime and oxygen and profile that he wouldn't otherwise get to very little apparent pushback, right? And I think there's a lot to be said there about just you know, what that says about the worldview of a certain type of Silicon Valley tech billionaire. But what's been striking for me is, and, and you know, the point that I made in CSIS gatherings a few times, is... There is not an organized pushback to that. There is a very well-funded campaign against vaccines that is getting a lot of airplay from some right-wing communities and some tech communities and getting and has a lot of dark money behind it. And there is not anything on the other side. There's not a kind of comparable movement on the other side. And I think it gets to a larger, one of the things that I find kind of more broadly concerning about the post-COVID moment we're in, is the inclination, I think, of the political center and the political left is just to say, God, that was terrible and move past it and not to make really fundamental changes in how we invest. And the inclination of a lot of many on the political right is to say, is to try and capitalize on the frustration people had, the anger in particularly in their constituency, and really make that a selling point for their campaign, as we're seeing very clearly in the DeSantis campaign. Um, but not just in the DeSantis campaign. I mean, a lot of the, you know, a lot of Republican political activists 
are really riding on the COVID, what we call a COVID lockdown. Frankly, it wasn't ever even a lockdown in this country compared to what we saw in Europe and much less China. So let's say the so-called lockdowns uh, as a way to connect with their constituency. Um, one county over from where I grew up in Michigan, I grew up in Kent County, Michigan, next door in Ottawa County, there was a, an extensive Washington Post piece recently about how a bunch of anti-lockdown, anti-mask, uh, kind of anti-COVID zealots took over the county council and immediately tried to fire the health director and run roughshod over a whole bunch of other, um, you know, but it, so I think it speaks to, you know, there is in, in, in the right in this country, I think a very genuine desire to not move past it, to use the pandemic as an excuse to deconstruct public health authorities in this country. And there's no organized pushback to that. Forward. And they're moving forward. And frankly, they're winning. And they are, you know, they are taking over positions of local government that often have influence over public health decision making. They are winning a lot of those. They are attacking public health governance in this country without any real organized pushback. And even where they're not winning kind of through the governance means they are harassing public health officials and making their jobs and their lives often, not just their public lives, but their private lives untenable. So people are leaving the field in droves. And I don't see any kind of any political leadership on the other side on that. You know, this is something that, you know, my sense is the White House wants to avoid COVID like the plague, pun intended. I think President Biden came in wanting right from the word go to be able to declare victory over COVID and move on. And the sort of July 2021 freedom from COVID like was emblematic of kind of how he read the politics on that. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. you know, he got burned badly. Delta had a say in that, right? But I think that's still fundamentally their read of the politics. They don't want to champion the other case. And and I get like I get that from a purely political lens. It might not be a political winner. The problem is where that's going to leave us is is actually much weaker the next time a pandemic like this hits. And I don't put that in any way solely on this administration. I think it is a wider kind of social and political issue, and it's not just in the United States. Yeah. Let's close quickly on Ukraine war and its broader impacts. I mean, the the war has stirred massive demands for humanitarian and economic support, obviously, in addition to the security support. The reconstruction requirements will be massive. So the G7 was very strong in committing to the reconstruction of the health sector. Yeah. The war has spawned all these terrible knock-on impacts in food insecurity, debt stress, inflation, yeah. uh, and it's further aggravated the alienation and skepticism among many low and middle income countries who are looking at this and saying, okay, we got screwed during the pandemic. Now there's a superpower rivalry or geostrategic crisis, and we're getting screwed a second round. What's the near to long-term impact as you think about this? I think you have to look at the long-term impact of Ukraine in the context of the long-term impact of COVID, because I think you're right to center on how low and middle income countries are viewing this. In low and middle income countries, you know, the U.S. and Europe are now going to them and saying, show solidarity with Ukraine. This is, this is a moral crime by the government of Russia. This is not just a major power geopolitics. This is an issue where that takes global solidarity. And, you know, we are very surprised when we're seeing countries like South Africa and a lot of low, other low and middle income countries, not or India even, not approach it through that lens, not approach it from a global solidarity lens. I see that in part 
as a direct outcome of COVID, of their dissatisfaction that, you know, when they, there is a very palpable feeling, uh, particularly amongst African countries, that the West showed zero solidarity with them and their needs during COVID. When COVID, if, which was a moment for global solidarity, if ever there was one, when COVID demanded global solidarity, Western countries responded with geopolitics and by meeting their own needs first. And I think what we see with Ukraine is those countries now responding in kind. And uh, you know, our appeal to them to show solidarity really lands with a clunk in the context of the prior few years. Very last closing question, Jeremy. We ask this of each of our guests. What gives you the greatest hope and optimism? The greatest hope and optimism. Um, I'll go back to the I'll go back to the the refugee and asylum uh, comments from earlier. All the polling on public sentiments towards refugees and asylum seekers shows large okay. majority support and compassion and desire to welcome. Um, you know, there was a moment I'd say between 2015 and 2016 where you had this back to back of the the Brexit vote the Paris attacks, the Trump election, and of course, both Brexit and Trump's election heavily campaigned on an anti-migrant, anti, and very specifically anti-refugee sentiment. And then, of course, um, Trump came in and, and did the, uh, the refugee ban and the Muslim ban. And it really felt at that time like maybe we had turned a bad corner politically um, and that the and a presumption of public support for refugees and asylum had been a misread of where voters actually were. And I think with the benefit of some additional years, we see that it was actually that moment was more of an admiration than a harbinger. Mm -hmm. I think if we if we you look at polling in the U.S. And, and we've done some polling, we have some more coming out very soon. It shows very consistent, broad majority support for welcoming refugees and uh, and broad majority support for asylum. If you go to Europe and poll, it's very similar. There was an interesting poll that More in Common did in the UK recently looking at sentiments towards the UK's attempt to do a refugee ban. And what it found was a lot of people were sort of generally in favor of trying to restrict the number of people voyaging on small boats. But then when you drill down to say, well, what about people fleeing war? Majority support for giving them asylum. What about people fleeing um, you know, other forms of crisis? Like, when you go down to the actual things people are fleeing, then the population is much more welcoming and a majority of the population wants to welcome. And I think that is the political opportunity. And right now, the whole center and even the center left is kind of presenting as if that that majority doesn't exist. But that's the potential I see for a, a political shift on the mm -hmm. politics of asylum. I would hope that what's happened in Europe in terms of the extraordinary openness and unity of purpose vis-a-vis -vis Ukrainian yeah. refugees, migrants, yeah. Yeah. I mean, over 20 million Ukrainians have crossed out of Ukraine into Europe, not all of them have settled, right? Five million roughly permanently settled, but 20 million have transited in and out and done so safely with support. And that is astonishing. And I think what it really gets to is that the limitations on asylum and the limitations on welcoming refugees are not mechanical. They're fundamentally political. You know, it's not that we can't absorb X number of people. You know, Europe, when they suddenly wanted to, could absorb millions of people on almost no notice. And you think how that would have played out 
if Europe had put those refugees through the same kind of scrutiny they apply to other refugees, um, it would have been a total colossal disaster. On our border, when a thousand Ukrainian refugees were trying to cross into San Diego, we paroled them in in a day. The current level of CBP-1 appointments is a thousand a day across the whole border for all nationalities. They're going to raise it to 1250, a 25% increase. It's still, you know, it's not nearly what we could do if we really wanted to. And so again, the issue is not that mechanically we can't solve this problem. The issue is that politically we're not choosing to. Jeremy, thank you so much. This has just been terrific. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.